This is The Radical Therapist, a space where we explore the intersections of collaborative therapy, philosophy, art and science and technology in a post-Freud, post-psychology world. Welcome to The Radical Therapist. This is your host, Chris Hoff. We are now at episode number 77. And today we're talking about narr- the effective turn in narrative therapy with Naveed Zamani. And I've been uh, wanting to have this conversation for a while, and it finally happened. So I'm excited about that, and I think you will be too. Uh, but before we get there, just two quick reminders. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you're at listening to the show. That's how we get out in front of more people. If you like what we're doing, please, um, please do that. And also come find us on the social medias, uh, Instagram, The Radical Therapist on Instagram, The Radical Therapist on Facebook. Uh, there's uh, videos up on the Facebook site at least, actually on the, I think on the Instagram site too. But come find us, come be part of the community. Uh, we would appreciate that. Um, so let's uh, get to our show. So right away, Naveed Zamani is an Iranian-American marriage and family therapist located in San Diego who situates his work in a decolonial post-structural feminism utilizing narrative therapy practices. His experience in the domestic violence field is supported by his work in academia, where rich conversations with therapists and students support a context of identifying culturally, linguistically sensitive practices that are accountable to those we serve. So without further ado, let's meet Naveed. All right, Naveed, welcome to the Radical Therapist Podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's an honor. Yeah, it's good to see you again. Yes, likewise. It's been a while. Uh, all right. Um, I've been wanting to have this conversation with you for a while, it, and I'm glad it's happening because I think this is um, important stuff. But uh, you've been doing work around the effective turn and narrative therapy, which and maybe other like just, you know, kind of maybe wrestling with emotions in a narrative therapy, would you say that kind of thing? But I guess uh, my first question for you is narrative therapy has long been grounded in the discursive or the textual, right? And whereas in the last several years, like psychotherapy has been increasingly interested in emotions, neuroscience, and the body. And in your work, you make the call for moving beyond a discursive turn that originally shaped narrative therapy toward a more complex, effective discursive practice in counseling and psychotherapy. And I'm wondering if you could say more. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been excited for this conversation too, Chris, just because it's kind of fraught territory in some ways. For sure. Yeah. Um, which in some ways I feel like, you know, it's exciting and important in some ways. Um, so I'll, I'll say that like um, the way I'm thinking of this, these ideas is in the context of a, uh, a kind of a music metaphor that I have. Um, Cause you kind of made this statement in the question, right? That like narrative therapy has long been grounded in the discursive ideas or what maybe my, uh, and I got to name my mentor here, Gerald Monk, who is uh, really instrumental in helping me come up with these ideas as well as Dr. Jane Ewing, who was kind of concurrently influencing me. Um, but I guess, you know, to, to speak to the ways that narrative therapy has been grounded in, Kind of a discursive territory. I uh, the effective turn ideas came out, uh, kind of out of some arguments and debates that Gerald and I had around um, the role of emotion, feeling, 
uh, effective practices and states kind of drawn out of Weatherall's work. And what I was noticing as maybe a younger generation of therapists coming into this work, um, what felt like a strong pushback from um, an older generation of therapists saying like, this is a narrative therapy, which I totally get and respect. And I want to kind of like very clearly say that I'm interested in honoring the journey of narrative therapy as particular as like, as my narrative therapy elders have uh, kind of shaped this work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, if it's okay to like share this hip hop metaphor, it really shapes how I think about this. Sure. Um, and forgive me for anyone listening who I might like uh, simplify the hip hop journey, but right. Like hip hop kind of emerged in the eighties out of uh, kind of a response to the climate uh, that African-Americans were kind of exposed to around um, uh, the ways that the FBI was influencing and kind of attacking the Black Panther Party, the uh, ghettofication, I suppose, of like various uh, communities of color and um, just the ways that the marginalization and the systemic marginalization that African-Americans were exposed to. And so the music kind of emerged in this response to that. Right. And so like you see in the 80s and the 90s as like gangster rap or even like before that, like Grandmaster Flash and folks responding to that social condition. And then as hip hop kind of gained kind of popular momentum and kind of became this worldwide uh, export of the United States, um, the flavor of it has completely changed. So there's like this there's this kind of like classic discussion in the hip hop world about the old hip hop heads and the new hip hop heads and what is hip hop and is this really hip hop? It's And we're all of it is hip hop, but there's like this strong push from this older hip hop generation saying, this isn't hip hop. You're not responding to the social conditions in which these ideas emerge out of, and you're not connected to those political threads and the style is different and all this stuff. And I just feel like narrative therapy is in a similar world. And mm. in some ways um, it kind of emerged out of the same timeline and you know it's kind of currently parallel moving along uh but it feels like there's this way where narrative therapy from my understanding and the ways that i was kind of exposed to it and through the uh, yeah the knowledge passed on to me by my mentors that i named um including many others was responding to a very problematic modernist cartesian uh psychoanalyst world where emotions and the naming of emotions and the naming of experience by the therapist was like hugely problematic. And so, you know, Michael White and David Epson, at least in the, re- the ways that I've interpreted their readings are like clearly responding to that. And now it just feels like narrative therapy or narrative therapists now are needing to respond to narrative therapy, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. The ways that it's dominated some particular, um, or at least it's kind of absorbed some power in the ways that like some epistemological threads become privileged. Yeah. And, so, yeah. Yeah. That's know. great. And, and I, and I've been having more of those conversations about um, narrative therapy responding to its own practices. Right. And so that's very interesting to me. And, but I'm wondering if you could, for our listeners share how you conceptualize the effective turn or effective practice. Right. So, so, you know, I don't know, is this irony? I don't know. Ironically, I don't know if that's the right word, but I hate defining the effective practices in turn, <laughs> uh, in, even as much as I'm like kind of like promoting these ideas. So, 
you know, this conversation with Gerald and I kind of emerged out of, well, some, some couples work I was doing and just for like listeners, I, um, my work is situated in working with, uh, a lot of my work is in the domestic violence world, I suppose. And uh, right now I currently work at a nonprofit called License to Freedom, where we're working with Middle Eastern refugees um, and immigrants who are experiencing violence. And so we're working, I'm a Farsi speaker, so I use Farsi and then we're using Arabic interpreters, large majority of our clients are Arabic speakers. Um, and so it, we're in other languages than English. And narrative therapy really privileges English and sure, the, yeah. the pedagogy of it is often very textual, right? Like I would go to these conferences and people are like reading transcripts, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, whatever, it's cool. It's, it's interesting to hear these like really creative and beautiful questions, Sure. but they're drawing on like English cultural threads and ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so as I kind of emerged, um, as I started doing a lot more couples work, especially couples work with folks who are experiencing violence or have had a history of violence in their work. Um, you know, and Michael wrote about this, like couples come in and say like, oh, it's communication problems, mm-hmm. right? But there's so much, they're talking to each other. They're just kind of being assholes to each other, right? They're hearing each other. The language is there, um, but the language is insulated in this other thing. And I guess in some ways, Gerald and I are interested in naming what a lot of, uh, and I, just to be clear, like this isn't Gerald and I, bringing forward ideas, we're naming what seems to be a surge of ideas in the narrative therapy world around um, the ways that affect as, and I'm gonna, let me define it, I'm getting to your question here, mm-hmm. and that affective practice as a feeling state, perhaps an emotional state, kind of like the way that your body, and see, even as I'm saying body, it's a very limited Cartesian way of describing the experience because it's so soul spirit driven mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's saturated in this cartesian stuff so it's hard to like really get away from it and describing yeah. it um but i like weatherall's kind of description of it as a fluid flowing merging developing kind of line of influence that it, that uh shapes experience yeah Great. so for as an example when i you know well i'll, I'll pause there actually okay all right. Yeah, uh, you did. You're, you're mentioning this uh, Cartesian categories, and I'm wondering in the work in your work, you want to move away from what you call describe as dividing practice, which breaks up human experience into car- Cartesian categories. And I'm wondering, just for our listeners, if you could say more about that and how we're just like really swimming in it. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but feel that narrative therapy, particularly through its pedagogy and its attention to story and its emergence out of the linguistic turn. I'm thinking like Wittgenstein's notions around um, uh, language as a precondition for thought, right? Right, language creates uh, reality kind of thing. Yeah. That like inadvertently, especially in the pedagogy, language becomes a focal point. The text becomes this focal point of teaching and demonstrating and understanding narrative therapy practices. Um, and I think it's inadvertently become very cognitive and started to kind of capture the same kind of Western influence that in some ways it was positioned to try and resist, uh, but of course got sucked into the middle of just like hip hop, right? The ways that hip hop was positioned to resist capitalism and neoliberalism, and it got swept away into capitalism and neoliberalism. Yeah. Um, So there's a way where I guess I want to name that like in, I think there's this problematic thing that happens in narrative therapy where I think as a community, we're really interested in aligning with some social justice 
practices and ideas and kind of attending to marginalized communities while holding on to ideas that are connected to those broader frameworks that are marginalizing those communities, hmm. right? Like, I think there's something that's lost when we're asking someone the story and experience of racism. Um, and uh, let me be clear. I'm not saying that it's not okay to ask about racism and invite someone to speak and language racism. Sure. But there's these other things that happen when that are just so hard to story. Like, for example, I don't know. Uh, the feeling I have as a Middle Eastern man over the past, well, many years, but 20, 30 years specifically, getting on a plane. And, you know, you walk on a plane and everyone's facing you. So everyone's always looking at everyone because what else is there to do when you're on a plane waiting right. for the plane to take off, right? But I feel that in a very different way, I think. The ways, at least the ways I've talked to with my, uh, you know, friends who are uh, in white bodies, they don't have this feeling of like interpreting gaze, right? And it becomes, this effective stuff becomes about interpretation, the way it shapes our interpretation of the world. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what are they thinking? Are they worried about me? How am I standing? How am I behaving? Um, am I being threatening? There's ways that I'm like really attending to my posture, my tone of voice, the ways that I'm positioned on this freaking plane because of a history of racist ideas around what Middle Easterners do on planes. Yeah, right, right. So, so again, like as I'm languaging, I'm obviously bringing that idea into language. Hmm. But I think it's important. I, I don't know. I guess I, 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 I'm in some ways interested in inviting therapists into asking questions about the role of the body and the feeling and emotion experience in ways that capture this kind of post-structural narrative therapist therapy uh, ethic. Because hmm. I think I think originally we weren't asking about feelings and emotions because it was like very psychoanalyst or very cbt or something and we're trying to like get away from that right and now in 2020 it's like well we're in a different place now with these ideas yeah great okay and and, and moving yeah and just a nice segue in your in your work you write how it was obvious when observing michael white's narrative work that he had an ability to stay close to effect as his clients shared their stories even though he ne never theoretically discussed the role of emotion in narr narrative therapy. Do you have a sense of why emotion was never taken up in his writing? Yeah, I'll say that, like, in some ways, I'm hesitant to talk about what I know about Michael White, because what I know about Michael White is through his readings and what's been told to me. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, I trust Gerald's own history and relationship with Michael and how he's come to understand his teachings. Mm -hmm. Um but my sense, my guess is that Michael was trying to find other ways of talking about emotion that weren't replicating the same language in which uh, I think White and Epson were kind of coming out of, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. So I'm, I'm kind of interested. I, I mean, right, like this whole idea of like the seven universal, what is it, like seven universals of emotion uh, that we all feel. And like there's, there's so much weird hierarchy and modernist stuff wrapped up in emotion that the word, <laughs> it's loaded. Right. I, I really cringe at talking about emotion or like using that word or saying, how does that make you feel? Right. Like, sure. oh, what a history. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm interested, like, like what would an epistemological higher, uh, anarchy of experience look like? Right. Like what would it look like to wonder about emotion and experience and affective practices, the ways that our habits are shaped by these cultural, political histories wrapped around feeling states uh, that's in our entire soul, body, spirit mm -hmm. experience. 
um, that we might wonder about and invite invite a languaging of that's um, interested in the client language. Yeah, that right. Makes sense. Ra- yeah, rather than the language we're all familiar with, right? Or yeah, or e- even rather, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, just the stuff that's easy to draw upon. That's in the you know in the the atmosphere about how right. to talk about emo- emotions, right? Yeah. Yeah. And in my work, you know, working with interpreters in Arabic, I can't rely on just language Mm -hmm. because it's getting passed along, if that makes sense. And it's Mm -hmm. getting interpreted by the interpreter and it's getting to me. And so my observation of my client becomes pretty important while also naming and being clear that, like, my client's effective practices are housed within a culturally Arabic zone. And I'm coming from an American, British tradition of, you know, like how you should be in conversation or how you should like show up in relationship. Um, so I think there's like, a, there's like an important like decolonial thread, I think, in reflecting on our own effective practices as therapists and how we invite or un- interpret other people's eff- effective experiences. Or I'll just step away from the word effective, just a wholeness of experience. All right. In your writing, you also share a quote by Carl Tom, who originally brought Michael White to North America, where he states that, and this is like his concern, where he states that narrative therapists must be rescued from, I'm going to quote, becoming increasingly disembodied as they seek more and more rigor in in articulating a preferred text of a person's life stories. For some time now, I have been concerned about how privileging the story of people's lives too strongly in narrative work can have an inadvertent negative effect by separating persons from the bodies in which they live and depend on to generate those stories, unquote. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, this is a tough one for me because I really align with the idea that our lives are, I mean, unsurprisingly, that I would align with this, that our lives are shaped by the ways that we story our lives, right? But I think that in the word English word of story, it captures a textual element pretty prominently. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of like, um, well, I, I'm thinking of like uh, ways that like asylum seekers at the southern border here in San Diego, where I'm located. Um, there's particular ways that asylum speaker or asylum seekers need to speak to their story that becomes privilege in a court setting. And so if you don't talk to your experience in this particular way that captures trauma talk, right, as we understand it, you're going to have a hard time. And for anyone who's worked with someone who's had a really shifting experience that we might call negative in some ways, um, or let's just use that word of trauma, um, it's fucking hard to talk to a story. It's super fucking hard to speak to that experience. Uh so I, I sometimes worry about like the ways that narrative therapy positions us to have this uh, particular privileging of the languaging of the story. And that's where we what we work with. Mm-hmm. Right. Like what would it be for us to be doing work sitting with someone? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, You also write that because of the dominance of liberalism and individualism in contemporary psychotherapy, many narrative therapists are hesitant to focus on examining effective practices, not wanting to disconnect. And this is kind of my interpretation, but not wanting to disconnect folks from what is occurring in the social and cultural landscape. So I'm wondering, you know, how do we or you conceptualize holding these concerns together? Man. That's a really good question. (laughs) 
I don't know. I guess I guess like that concern makes a lot of sense to me in English, I suppose, right? Sure. Because there's a way that like narrative therapy is now extending beyond the reaches of English. For sure. And there's a way that like um, I don't know in the ways that like the questions are taught or captured, right? Like mm-hmm. at least in my experience of narrative therapy pedagogy and the conferences I go to, it's yeah, all right. about. Beautiful questions. Beautiful, right? yeah. I, how, how, I love po- that. how poetic can we get? <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. It's how how beautiful. Like, how do we like lean into the aesthetics of a que- constructing question? Right. Sure. Um, which I love. I love that stuff. It's really interesting to me as an English speaker. Right. But it doesn't support my work in Farsi. And just this past, uh, um, I'm thinking about the storython that Stephen Gaddis put on. Yeah, I heard and, about it. Yeah. Yeah, I had the opportunity to kind of sit in on that and it was or and kind of observe. And I remember, I, I watched my one at midnight, and they were I think somewhere in I think it was China, and they were speaking in Chinese or some some language. Um, I I wasn't sure what language they were speaking, so forgive me. Um, but I was just wondering, like, man, what is what does narrative therapy look like in their language? All right. So I think I think there's a way where. Um, I don't know. I'll say this, Chris, like one of the interesting things that happened while I was, while Gerald and I were writing this um, article, and then as we submitted it and we were engaging with reviewers for this um, article was this notion, very powerful notion. And we got a lot of pushback from the reviewers. And they said, this is not, uh, the the authors don't seem to understand what narrative therapy really is. Wow. They don't really seem to connect with what Michael White really meant. Um, there's a there's this way that Michael White's voice becomes utilized for various agendas. For sure. And I think those agendas are steeped in American Western cultural ideas. Yeah. So I don't know. I I, I guess I want to like be. I, I'm saying I don't know a lot because with with the naming of the effective turn, the exciting part of it is like I don't know what's coming. But I know that like neuropsych is now here. It's kind of part of our work. And I'm interested in how do we bring in a post-structural ethic to understand the categories or make sense of like an experience named through neuropsychology without being too definitive about it or naming the threads in our own lives that shape how we view that experience that mm. has a colonial effect. Um, I'm kind of a sometimes a narrative therapy fundamentalist, for better or for worse. <laughs> um, and Gerald is a much more um, he's 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 I think he's more skillful. I think just given the time he's been in this work, at imagining the impossible of this work, mm-hmm. um, and that's what I'm interested in. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, my next question was about the critique of the discursive turn as Eurocentric, but you've been kind of talking about that. I don't know if you want to say anything more about that, but you've kind of taken on. Uh, yeah, well, and this is one where I like kind of my 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 body starts responding to yeah. this type of question just because yeah. the feedback I've gotten from peers and mentors and you know people I really respect but live in white bodies. Yeah, and tell me. Um, like I'm thinking of one of the reviewers saying like, no, narrative therapy is responding. It's, it's responding to Western imperialism. It's responding to Western uh, notions of Cartesianism. Hmm. And I'm like, well, f- but fuck, it's, you're speaking English. <laughs> how, how are you like, okay, you're responding, but how are you resisting in English? Like, that's like my real question, right? And how are you not, how are you able to like be cautious of that 
line of influence being kind of cast at our clients. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so I don't know with, with the Eurocentric thing, I mean, I don't want to get too far down, like, uh, kind of like Hegel's teleology stuff, but like, it just feels like the modernist or at least a discursive turn was responding to, um, modernism, right? It's responding mm -hmm. to a European philosophical location that was spread across the world. So how could it not be steeped in those ideas? Mm -hmm. Just as narrative therapy was responding to psychotherapy happening in English, I think it's risky to assume that we're not pulling forward still some of those threads, if yeah. not many. For right? sure. Yeah. Yeah, especially when all our theoretical heroes are born out of that same kind of perspective where we're not drawing maybe from other voices and how and and in ways that might influence our work, right? Yeah. And this is where like Marcella Polanco has been really exciting for me to be connected to mm -hmm. because she's doing a lot of work in Spanglish, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. uh the ways that like it's not even like uh it's a language shaped by a colonial history. Right, Spanish, mm -hmm. English, and Spanish, and what is possible for a therapist to do out of that language, mm -hmm. that Spanglish thing that lives kind of in the border right here that, in San Diego, mm -hmm. and so it's been interesting to watch like Spanish-speaking students, especially students who've grown up in a kind of a tr transnational border town, being like, oh, oh, I can I can see how I can do some helpful work with people versus like in my head going from English to Spanish. And then going back to English and you're like translating a question four times in your brain. And you're like, okay, wait, um, my professor asked this question so beautifully. How can I ask a beautiful question like that in Spanish? And then it comes out and your client's like, what the hell did you just say to me? And now you've, now you're that therapist, right? You're like knocked up into the academic land of people that don't get my lived experience type of therapist. All right. Um, also, you argue that the specific attention to effective practices only increases and enhances the therapeutic responses made possible by practitioners in tracking how the body and motion body and emotion can simultaneously embody the oppressive discourses of exclusion and personal failure and I'm wondering if you could say more about that yeah, it makes me think of the ways that um well, I'm thinking on one hand the ways that like as we kind of align with a particular philosophical location, we might inadvertently fall into those dualisms that we're so trying to resist. Like, right, like the anti-biologism in social constructionism, mm -hmm. where it's like, okay, oh, oh, like, don't want to touch that because there's a really dangerous history there, agreed, right? But then it's also like, well, when do you want to touch on that idea, right? Um, or the ways that, um, I don't know, like we're, the, the, I'm thinking about kind of some of Sedgwick's work around like noticing the middle ranges of agency, right. Versus like this on off switch of agency and trying to find agency happening in the absent, but implicit versus like, what are the negotiations and the simultaneous operations of power as oppression and subjugation and resistance that occur. I'm thinking of this article um, by Vicki Reynolds around the imperfect allyship. Yeah, and she yeah, kind yeah. of, Talks this, she shares this beautiful story about being on a bus, and I'm sure you're familiar, and I hope readers can... Yeah, just, actually, somebody just emailed, uh, Kathy Adams emailed it out today. I just got a copy of it today. But I've, I've seen it before, same, yeah. We actually might have been on the same email thread. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but but in that story, she talks about how this Chinese woman on the bus is being uh, yelled at by a large white guy on the bus, and he's hurling like racist insults at her. And her response is to kind of cower and hold her head down, and she has a very like small hunched down practice, which you know we could be in a lot of various interpretations around about, but but like that feel like as an effective practice there's probably some history in there to wonder about, like ways that she's come to learn about that practice as helpful or useful. And the negotiations of power that she was in around like risk to self and mitigating someone else's comments that become like really powerful acts. And for myself as someone who's in the domestic violence uh, world, those middle ranges of agency, those negotiations with power Mm. become really important. And they also shape I don't know. This is one of the things that like when I'm talking to survivors of violence is like the, the effective practices that kind of linger once they're out of that relationship and ways that it was helpful in the relationship. And those habits are now still with them. And maybe they're interested in some parts of it. Maybe they're not, but I'm interested in that deconstruction. So this notion of effective practices feels like an, at least to me, an entry point into that conversation. And, you know, like, and I'll just say this too, Chris, like, I guess I'm not thinking about affect as in any way separate from an epistemological understanding of our lives, right? Like, I'm thinking about when I teach, for example, um, if when I do trainings in the community, especially with like DV providers who are like inundated with DV epistemology around the cisgendered heterosexual relationship, the male is abusive and the female is a uh, subject to that abuse. Mm-hmm. If I say abuser and I say victim, there's a whole feeling state that like gets carried forward with it, right? Because for example, I have I run 52-week domestic violence groups with Arabic speaking men. And I bring in trainees with me, often um, they're tip often uh, female-bodied trainees. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting to hear about their reflections or what they imagine is going the group is going to be like as they envision abusers. Mm. And then what's happened, at least so far, what's happened every year where students leave and they're like, I would have never imagined how close and connected and warm I would feel with that group of men, knowing their histories mm. and knowing the things that we've talked about. That's great. You're, you're reminding me of the work, like Craig Smith's work around the uh, four ways of knowing is kind of what he called it. I mean, there's probably a lot more, but you know how we're always taught in school, the relational and the rational, uh, the technical knowledge, the, uh, the rational knowledge, which is theories and interventions and all that. But he talks about the bodily knowing and the yes. relational knowing and the bodily knowing is always kind of interesting to me. And the way that I understood it is just that this, um, like, you know, I'm in recovery and I'll be in a meeting and people are just kind of, meandering about and there's some, a lot of activity and people walking around, but then all of a sudden somebody will share something and all of a sudden, you know, they're touching a spot, like a very vulnerable spot. And then all of a sudden without, it's like a domino effect. All of a sudden the room just goes silent, right? Mm-hmm. Because everybody bodily knows something important is happening right now. And I think that, and it's, it's that same way. I think when you're even in a, maybe a one-on-one um, therapeutic session, you know, um, that same kind of thing. I, we feel it, I think, in our body first, you know, and then that can guide us in particular ways. And um, and that's, you, you have me thinking about that work, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, I mean, 
that that feels really central to my especially my group work right because a lot of my group work is shaped off of um i mean alan jenkins has been very influential sure, in my work sure, yeah. in, in the uh, uh in my dv work and or specifically my work with men too and i'm i don't assume that like we can just get together and have any old conversation it takes so many practices of trust, respect, attending to like what I would call like an effective quality in the room that like makes space for tough conversations. And kind of like to what you're saying, Chris, like the flip side of my work too with couples, especially couples who are in violence, the, the noticing of, of affect and the role of physiology and the ways that it's shaping speech and the pressure of speech and the posture of a body becomes like really important as I'm about to ask questions, it's shaping my questions, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm not in, interested in inviting violence in the room, right? I'm not interested in inviting violence to be with this couple. And my questions have that, hold that risk, yeah? Yeah. Um, so, so, so these effective ideas kind of give me, at least in my idea, or at least in my experience, like some sort of entry point to asking about and wondering about habits of being, of uh, relational habits of being with you together, the ways that, as someone says a word, they're interpreting it and how it like shifts their physiology. And as couples are talking, their physiologies are, sh- they're shaping each other's bodies, right? So it kind of goes back to Gergen's ideas around the relational being where it's like, we assume we're these like separate beings, <laughs> but like, how can we be separate when your words are fully changing inner workings of my body? I don't know. That's great. Okay, uh, a couple more questions for you. Um, I guess I'm wondering how, and you draw in your writing, you draw a lot on the work of Jeff Zimmerman, and I know he's been tackling some of these ideas, but I'm wondering how you're imagining neuroscience's possible contributions to narrative therapy. That's a really good question. I, I mean, uh, Marie Natalie Bedois, I think that's yeah. his name, and Zimmerman, and there's a lot of good work coming out. I mean, I'll just, so this is where Gerald and I, uh, get into a lot of debate with each other. (laughs) In some ways, Gerald is really, um, he's open. He's he's invitational of new ideas. And for me, I, uh, it takes a little bit for me to kind of like, I got to sit with some ideas, not to say that Gerald doesn't, isn't in his own complex practice around it, of course. But um, in this debate, Gerald was kind of coming up against like these new neuropsych ideas. I mean, my uh, mentor and colleague, Jan Ewing was kind of, entering this world around physiology and i think it can be helpful i personally can't help but feel like when i'm when when i look at the work that it's drawn from like siegel's work or um vanderkoek mm-hmm. colk yeah i've never actually said that name out loud right yeah i've never said that name i'm sure everybody will know who we're talking about <laughs> <laughs> um they're they're still in some ways like constructing some what feels to me like universal statements about an experience shaped by science. So, hmm. and our and our technology is just not there yet, right? To know what the hell is going on. So my my thing with that is like, well, what's the point of being in like the old hip hop head position of saying like, fuck that, get it out of here, it doesn't belong, to like. What parts of this can be helpful? What parts of this might be useful? For me and my work with Arabic speaking and Farsi Middle Eastern families, um, it it's saturated in English, so it doesn't really work. And I've watched trainees who 
are really interested in an idea. And I just remember like, I don't know, I just remember in group one time, the notion of uh, PTSD came up and the ways that it affects various parts of our brain or amygdala. And the interpreter and the, the, the clients were going back and forth for like a good 10 minutes trying to just negotiate what words to use. And ultimately, the only, the only thing that came out of that was an idea around PTSD being called when men go to war and come back with bad experiences. Mm. That was like the landing for the word PTSD. And the rest was just like so foreign. Mm. So in my specific work, I don't find it so helpful. Mm. In my private practice where I was working with like culturally American folks and folks who are like interested in science and folks who are interested in like um, what I would say kind of a modernist categorization of an experience, that stuff becomes kind of like helpful. And it can be a relief to know like, oh, my fear response isn't because I'm the problem. It's some sort, some, uh, it's, it, at least in my experience, it can contribute to like separating the person from the problem, okay. right? Okay. And the risk being the amygdalization of an experience, right? Yeah, right, right. But that's where these contextual ethics, I think, I think I want them to be brought in. Yeah, great. All right. Uh, you know, what are some ways now that we're, you know, been talking about this for a little while, what are some ways uh, for our listeners to begin to integrate an effective discursive practice with with or within narrative therapy? So for the sake of the conversation, I'll kind of speak to two components in my world that I think about, like the reflexive side of effective practices. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking as a um, as a a larger male, I don't know, it's a kind of a weird thing to say. I've actually never described myself that way. So that was kind of weird. But as a guy, as a male who's in a body with a beard and kind of captures some particular <laughs> male histories, right, mm-hmm. just from my body's presence, mm-hmm. um, working with, let's say, it's like my time at the shelter, for example, where I was working with uh, often female body survivors of violence. The way my body is presence and located in a room and the way I'm talking and my posture and my distance and all these things that I would kind of capture in an effective practice shaped by my own history here as an Iranian American male in Southern California, et cetera, et cetera, become really important considerations. Like I need to be mindful of that, right? Especially when I was with the the, the domestic violence response and going out on crises, right? Um, uh, showing up with police officers to domestic violence calls and being positioned to work with the identified survivor uh, or victim, I guess, in the context of law enforcement. I uh, My linguistic practices kind of become secondary, if not tertiary. Mm-hmm. I'm needing to like show up in a way that demonstrates safety, right? Like how do your, how does your body show safety? How does your body enact a non-threatening set of performances, right? Like, these become like really critical reflections that are contextually based on your own world and history and culture. Um, so there's that reflexive side of it. Um, and then when it comes to uh, my work with uh, like the, my work with clients and their stories. Um, also, I'll say this, like uh, Dr. Ewing's, uh, Jane Ewing's work has become really influential in the ways that you might scaffold what she calls identity states. Mm-hmm. Right, like the ways that our our stories and the ways that like we're storing our actions and our the meaning making around our actions um, and all these different landscapes, right? That uh, Michael and David so beautifully spoke to uh, 
can construct a particular identity state that has a physiology associated with it. So in my work, especially with couples, what I've discovered is like um, uh, some mapping practices around like statement of position with physiology. So as a client says something to another client, let's say um, let's say that I'm working with a couple. As one member of the couple says to the other couple something, I'll pause and I'll ask the couple before I say like, "What did you? What do you think you, they said? Or what's your response? Or blah, whatever practice we might follow." I'll say like, "Tell me about what's going on in your body right now, mm-hmm. right?" And I'm in English, so I have to kind of use English words like body. Uh, and physiology becomes often, in my experience, uh, an accessible entry point mm-hmm. to affect. And, oh, well, my heart's beating really fast and like my stomach is tight and my shoulders are tense. What would you call that? Hmm. Uh, well, that's irritation. Uh, and then from there, you can, there's so many beautiful lines of questions that you could go down. Like, are you familiar with that irritation? What does that irritation tell you? How is it shaping your next response? What is it, how, are, how is it having you making meaning about what they already, what they just said, right? Like there's so many ways that now I'm wondering about the insulation of the text, hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so, so scaffolding basically like physiology and the body and the ways that as we're going back and forth, those um, that's being shaped. And I don't know. I'm interested in like histories and context associated with effective states. Like when you see the police and you're fearful, there's a history there. I assume, and I'm interested in wondering about that history. That mm, that doesn't necessarily need to be some story of racism, right? Like I was affected by the police in this way versus the ways that like, as you're growing up, uh, I mean, in this moment right now, as our country continues to grapple with a really unjust system and uh, police forces that are just killing black people daily. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Uh, Ways that you can grow up around people who are feeling fear as they're in particular communities that you don't need to like be directly connected or having had that experience, but you know what it's like in, in terms of a community experience, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Okay, great. Um, thank you for that. I do have one final question and that is just, I, I like to ask it at the end of all these things. Um, just, you know, so what's capturing your attention these days, Naveed? What's, uh, What are you reading? What ideas are you wrestling with? Um, Where are you at? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Well, right now I've been doing a lot of work and reading and writing with uh, Marcel Polanco around uh, other, I guess, you know, in simple terms, like what practices can emerge when we're in other languages Mm -hmm. and trying to stay connected to some of the broader ethics and narrative therapy offers. Mm -hmm. So I've been really like kind of engaging, trying to think more intentionally about my work in Farsi. Um, Because this is my experience. And I think the experience of many of my students who are um, bi, multicultural, multilinguistic, is that you, whether you like it or not, you get positioned to work with that community, right? Like my prior practice was like filled with, I mean, I had my, my Middle Eastern nonprofit work, and then I have my private practice, which you could like broadly make assumptions about the clientele. And I found myself with a lot of Farsi speakers in my private practice because they'd search Farsi speaking therapists. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, doing a lot of reading and kind of writing in that zone right now. And then, yeah, I've been kind of on this like decolonial kick for the past year or two. Mm-hmm. And 
I'll recommend this book. It's called Whites, Jews, and Us, The Politics of Revolutionary Love by Huria Batalja. She's a French-Algerian woman. Hmm. It is fucking fire. It is such <laughs> a good book. Um, and I just really like it because it just, well, it aligns with my politics around how do we stay in accountable forms of love? You know, like, I, mm. I think this is where I got really connected with Vicky Reynolds. Yes. Yeah. Shit, she's on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that worked. And then I really enjoyed reading a book called The Mistaken Identity mm. uh, by Assad Hayrad. It's a race and class in the age of Trump. So it's kind of just interesting analysis of the inextricable link between race and class in the United States. So I don't know. I'm trying to I'm trying to find some anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist praxis in my work as an American narrotherapist using English, which is very difficult in those particular confines because it just funnels those things I'm trying to resist. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Well, when you figure it out, let me know, please. <laughs> oh, yes. Don't don't wait for me. <laughs> All right, Naveed, thank you very much for coming on. Um, I'm glad we were able to do this, and I just really appreciate it. And thanks for coming on. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Well, that's our show. And as always, I hope you found it helpful, useful, and uh, potentially can inform your practices in some way. And uh, just a quick reminder again, please rate and review the show on iTunes. Please Come find me on social media and Dr. Chris Hoff on Instagram or The Radical Therapist on Instagram. Would love to uh, have you in the community and be able to share stuff with you. That would be great. Um, And if you think, please always share the podcast with those you might think would find it helpful. And also go find us on YouTube. There's the Radical Therapist channel on YouTube. There's some interesting videos, or we think they're interesting videos, that you might find up there. So go check those out. So as always, uh, my name is Dr. Chris Hoff, and this has been the Radical Therapist. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.